Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to another episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Greg Bryan. I'm joined with my other co-host, Jim Resky. Jim, how are you doing right now? Great, Greg. Just uh, super excited tonight to be on the podcast. So, Cool. Well, we, we have been discussing the book of Genesis. And we're going to continue that discussion, but we have a special guest with us tonight. My good friend, Louis Baradin, is on the show. Louis, just for the audience's sake... We want to ask you some questions about your life. But first of all, thanks for joining the show. How are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Blessed indeed. Grateful that you both asked me to join. Awesome. Well, Louis, let me just start us out. Uh, tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey. Like, what what was your life like before you knew Jesus? So that's a long, deep question. So I'll, I'll do the best I can to kind of summarize. But um Born and raised in um, Akron, Ohio. Actually, first my I spent my younger years in Cuyahoga Falls before he moved. But uh, my mom and dad, uh, dad was a bar owner. So you can imagine some of the, the things that come along with a fellow being a bar owner. So my dad was both an alcoholic and a drug addict. And my mother, she was the opposite end of the spectrum. She was the conservative registered nurse. So we had the enabling nurse and the, uh, the wild bartender. So, and I was raised in a family and I, I applaud my parents because I believe they did the best they could to point me to the truth, but ultimately just through their upbringing, um, I think that was blurred a little bit as to what they perceived as being the truth. Um, I was raised Catholic, uh, spent many, many years going to uh, Sunday school. In fact, I went for two reasons. Uh, it allowed me to have a safe place on Sundays for a couple of hours. And uh, two, it allowed me to spend time with my friends. And I would say the third reason, ultimately, I was, even at that point, seeking. I had a very strong desire, and I wanted to know the truth. So ever since I was a child, I've been rather brash and bold with the truth, uh, regardless of the consequences. I was the child that, when asked a question, I always told the truth, regardless of the consequences. So, but, um, you know, as I continued those years, being raised in that fashion and form and going to Sunday school. I was inquisitive and I asked questions, but as far as my house was concerned, we had a Bible, it's about 18 inches thick, your typical Catholic family Bible. And the only time it was really open is if we had a specific assignment or project for Sunday school. I asked a lot of questions at home. I never really saw a family member pray. I never really saw a family member read the Bible. And with a lot of the questions that I asked, I was generally directed back to the church and was told to ask the priest. So, but ultimately overall, you know, growing up, I was a, I was a pretty good kid. Um, Eighteens when things started to shift or change a little bit, uh, different friends that I had had and influences and of course seeking approval where I didn't really receive a lot, receive a lot of approval from my family. Um, I started to seek approval sometimes in the wrong friends. And uh, 
the first time I really stumbled was probably about the age of 18. It was uh, sexual sins. Um, it was the first time I made a decision because I felt like less of a man trying to please men instead of honoring God. And ultimately, that's where things started in that fashion or form. But at the age of 17, I was working full time for my father in my family's bar. And so to be 17 years old, I was being exposed to a lot of things. So I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Uh, now you and I have something in common and that is, I, I believe you have, you don't, you don't drink alcohol. I have never drank. I've never smoked. I've never done drugs. I've never had a cup of coffee and I quit drinking pop when I was 21. Man, that's a lot. That's a so, lot. But it's, what's really amazing is to think of somebody who's worked, worked in a bar and never touched alcohol. That's well, actually, I touched alcohol, but most of the times it was accidental. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> so you pick up, pick up the wrong glass sometimes, sometimes when you're tapping a keg, that pressure. So there was a few times I did taste it, but it wasn't intentional. <laughs> That's funny. So, Louis, why is that? Since that seems to be kind of a big uh, notable feature when you say, I don't, and down, down to not uh, drinking pop. And by the way, for some of our listeners who aren't from the Midwest United States, pop would be would be soda, uh, or I think uh, even carbonated beverages in other parts of the world. But uh, that's a long list of abstinences. I mean, is there a reason? Would you is observations from well, the family bar? That's so an early it's a question I that I commonly get, and people most often they make the assumption: Is it because of your father? So my dad imagined any kind of a compulsion or addiction, he had them. Yeah, and. Um, you know, there's one reason I have not drank, and there's only one reason I haven't drank, and uh, it's it's just purely and simply God's grace. I can honestly say to you, the only reason I've never drank is because I've never had the desire. Hmm. So I am the first Verdon male in four generations that's not an alcoholic. Wow. So. Wow. Yeah. So what was the what was the turning point in your life that? Um, so you told us a little bit about what your life was like before you found Christ. Um, well, how I didn't did you... find him. He found me. Right, right. Well, how did he find you? And you, I maybe you were getting to that point because you were it talking about when you were 18. 2003, so it was much later. I had left the bar. Um, I was working for a friend's father, and I was in a position where I was living in a condominium I had no business being in. It was very expensive. Um, my my income had changed greatly. I had gone from making a lot of money to what I was earning and had reduced quite a bit. My father had died. I was mourning the death of my father. And I was really in a very difficult place and a difficult point in my life where uh, there was a lot of sin in my life. And uh, it was a Thursday night. I, I, I don't know how I could tell you that, but I do know it was a Thursday night. It was in the summer before fall. I wish I knew the date. But um I was in bed and something compelled me to get out of bed. It was probably around 2.30 in the morning. And I took uh, three steps. The only light in the room, I, I love telling this part of the story because it, it dates me, but uh, my digital alarm clock was the only light that was in the room. And I just remember taking about three steps and um, someone had pushed me from behind my kneecaps and I fell to my knees. And when I fell to my knees, I just started to weep. And I turned and I crawled back to the edge of the bed and I cried out, God, I don't want to live like this anymore. Save me. And I just remember standing up and 
almost falling into my bed and wrapping myself in my comforter. And I woke up 13 hours later and um, there's been nights I've slept 13 hours before, but woke up restless and still tired. But that morning when I woke up, there was a rest I had never had before, just a piece. Something had changed. I didn't understand. I, I, I was trying to describe it at the time, but I couldn't. But uh, that was the turning point, and uh, nothing in my life's been the same since that evening. Um, it took me many years to understand who had touched me that night, but uh, it was pretty surreal, and and um, I was not going to church. I was not reading the Bible. I certainly had no one ministering to me or preaching or teaching me the gospel. Uh, the furthest thing from it, I don't know that I had a Christian within 100 miles of me. So, And that's what's so unique about my conversion is... Uh, and through his grace and by his grace, he came to me. Wow. It's amazing. Lee. Was that like a low point in your life or you felt like there were things going on? You, it sounds like it was a little bit of desperation you're in. You felt that tap from behind and, and the immediate response was, I got, I don't, you said, God, I don't want to live like this. Save me. Save me. But there's something in your life at the time you want, I want to change. I want to. I want to be saved and be rescued from something. It sounds it sounds like anyway, the way you describe it. So yeah. the story I think of in scripture, I remember the first time I read it, the smile it put on my face. You read about the, the terrible storm and you have to take into consideration these were veteran seasoned fishermen. And the storm was the storm was so overwhelming that they were terrified. And I try to imagine these men, you know, their daddy sleeping in the bow of the boat. You know this this person of influence or power or authority, and uh, almost a fear to wake him up. But ultimately, they do. And uh, Jesus, of course, was just resting and sleeping in the bow of the boat because of his trust in the Father. And uh, you know, of course, he walks out, whispers, and calms the seas. Who is this man that whispers and calms the seas? So, and you know, I'm just grateful. I mean, at that point. Was it difficult? Of course it was. I think one of the most dangerous things in life in the world is when things are going very well. I commonly like to ask people, you know, what are the, the three things in your life, events that have made you the person you are today? And I preface by saying, don't overthink it. Because people tend to dwell on it too long. And really, I just want the, the impulsive answer. And in most situations, occasionally somebody will surprise me and they'll start by saying, you know, my salvation coming to know Jesus Christ. But that's an anomaly. Most of the time, the responses to the question are generally the three most difficult things they faced in their life. So, and we have a God that loves us, and it's hard to understand sometimes why there's trials and suffering. And the Lord doesn't always cause them, but he allows them. But what he promises is that he'll use them for good. Hmm. Sounds like he was using it for good in your life to kind of create in your heart some kind of desire to reach out to him. A friend and I, we used to talk about things. It's like wine. If you take something and put enough pressure on something, grapes, for instance, it makes something much sweeter. Hmm. So is it true then that you pretty much grew up with a awareness of God? You never, you never went through a time where you didn't believe in him? Well, I would say I grew up with an idea of what God was. But when you say God, it was a distant, a distant figure, something that was unascertainable or unfathomable. So I think 
when things really started to change is when I intrinsically started to have a a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Hmm. How did so, that happen? So then what take us after that Thursday night at 2.30 in the morning when you felt the hand of God on you and that desire to connect with him, what happened next? What happened? Did you so, meet other Christians uh, then? Or? Well, I mean, the first person I went out to try to talk to was my mother. And uh, it was a very ugly response. It was legalistic and superficial and questioning my decisions. And, and uh, so that was really overwhelming. You know, it, it just was not what I anticipated, but it was probably two weeks after that had taken place. I ended up at an event over in Cuyahoga Falls and uh, Bob Bevington, uh, who is a friend of my father's. And during during my my dad, he, I was 30 years old when he passed away. I was relatively young, but my father was the type of person. He didn't really speak negatively about anyone, but there was just a very small list of people he spoke very highly of. And my father used to speak very highly of Bob Bevington. And I knew Bob and I had interacted with Bob and I spent some time with him, but I wouldn't say I spent a lot of time with him. And I ended up over at the Sheraton in Cuyahoga Falls. And there was hundreds of people there and Bob and I are both very extroverted. And at that time I was very involved socially. And I saw him and I went to speak to him. And we ended up talking that night for two and a half hours as if nobody else was there. And there was four or 500 people there. And we exchanged numbers and agreed we would get together. And so I went over once for dinner. I think I went alone. I went over a second time with my girlfriend. And I went over a third time. And Bob had mentioned, hey, we're going to start this Bible study on Sunday evenings, which later became the Cellar Dwellers. I, I, I was the original in faction. I was part of the first group. So, I've heard of that. I know about that group. I visited that group before. Yep. And yeah, I so think Jim knows about the group, too. Bob invited me to come over, come over on a Sunday night. And I remember that night. It was Louis Giglio. And I believe it's called Indescribable. Oh, and yeah. He, he talks great... about space and the Hubble telescope. And and I remember watching it. There was some wonderful people there. John Schott, Rob Thomas, Amy, his wife. And I remember watching the video. And, and uh, praise God, I've always been a person that's very... I've always been open, a willingness to listen, to learn. I've always been a seeker. And uh, watching that video that night, probably the most overwhelming thing was when I looked to my left and I looked to my right, and there was grown men weeping with tears running down their face. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, this is really heavy. Mm. And But it was very overwhelming. I didn't know how really to respond to it. In the end, Amy was so cute. She came up, got on her knees right in front of me and said, so what do you think, Lulu? And she was just demanding her, you know, trying to get this initial response from me from what I had seen. And it was very overwhelming, but that's that's how it kind of started. And then I continued to go faithfully every Sunday. And I literally sat in silence for six months and I never spoke. And six months that's later, hard for me to believe. That's true. <laughs> so at this time, you were a baby, a, a new Christian, a new Christian. So you're just, it sounds like you were just like a sponge. You almost couldn't speak because you each, were just. Each, each Sunday, it was just, I was hearing new things and just listening. Some of the perspectives were similar. Some were very different. But I think what was most powerful for the first time, I was really hearing the word of God directly. You know, it was just the word. And so after six months one night, 
I looked at Bob and I said, hey, Bob, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And of course, our study ended at nine o'clock and this was around 930. And uh, so we were late as usual. And Bob looked at me and went, yeah, yeah, sure, Louis, what's going on? And uh, so I started asking questions that night. And I'll never forget it because five souls stayed there that night. And when we finally left on a Sunday night, it was 2.30 in the morning. Oh my God. It was Monday morning. Yep. I had a lot of questions. Wow. So, and it was probably three to three and a half years into my new birth or that new type of life that I actually walked into a church. And so really the only foundation I had as far as my faith was my Sunday night Bible study. And then ultimately, after about three years, Bob and his family invited me to go to the Christmas concert. And the music was so overwhelming. It just, it touched me. And then I started to go to church. I said, I think I'd like to go to church on Sunday. And I remember the first time I walked in, having run the bar for seven years, and I've, I've always just been a very social person. So I tend to, if I enter a new area, arena, or group of people, I make an effort to know the people involved. And when I started to go to the church, it was really overwhelming for me because I'd walk in on a Sunday and there was so many people, but I only knew a handful of people. I was used to going to places where I knew most of the people there. And I remember the first time I went, it really stood out to me telling Bob, this is so different, Bob. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, the people almost seem like they're glowing. And I said, they look so healthy. And there's just a different perspective. People are just very different here. And so that's where things kind of led. And I started to go to church. And then later, it was the men of the word Bible study. Um, simply put, things did not work out. And there was a separation from the initial Bible study. And on Saturday mornings, I started attending the men's Bible study. And again, it was very powerful to me because the first five years, I didn't show up once prepared, not once. And it's not that I wasn't making the effort. I was trying to read scripture, but I would read it. And it was like Japanese stereo instructions. I, I, I would wrestle with it and try to read it, and it didn't make any sense. And But I kept faithfully showing up every Saturday. And I can tell you the turning point, it was the verse when it talks about Christ healing and the Pharisees suggest that only the Messiah could have done that. And then they accused him of healing in the power of Beelzebub. And he opened my eyes and I recognized that the fools in their own admission that only the Messiah could perform a miracle like that. They were staring at the truth and they couldn't see it, but I could. And it was a turning point for me. And that's when I started to be much, much more deliberate about reading. And when I started to read, it started to make sense. He started to reveal himself to me. And it was terrifying for a long time because I could see things and understand things that when I would meet with groups of people, I, I would try to express what I felt like the spirit was revealing or showing me. And I endured and dealt with a lot of rejection. And, uh, and I was attacked, uh, to be frank with you. And Saturday is the one place that it's been consistent and faithful where I've been, I've been able to show up and my responses haven't always been right per se, but it's what the spirit has revealed to me. And it's a place where I've always felt safe, where I could express, you know, or share what I felt like the word was speaking to me in my life. 
And as a result of that, it started to embolden me. I felt more comfortable sharing the things I was seeing and professing the things that I could see in his word. So 2015, I got involved 2014 in prison ministry. And um, this was very powerful. There was an inmate that I had sponsored that weekend, and it's what's called open mic. And imagine it's almost like the woman by the well, they have a chance to go up and freely speak into a microphone and share their testimony. And this fellow went up and in front of all the inmates, he said, all my life, I've known Jesus Christ was my savior. But it wasn't until this weekend that I knew he was the, the Lord of my life. And he took his hands and he extended them like this. And I remember watching, and I don't know if anyone else could see what I saw that day. And he told his head, and I could see Christ crucified. And it, it's, it's hard to explain some of these things, but I left. And that was a Sunday and that Tuesday night at my weekly Bible study with Marshall and the crew, Marshall Brandon. I looked at Marshall after the study. This was not premeditated. I, I looked at him and I said, hey, Marshall. And he looked at me, he said, yeah, Lou. And I said, I think I need to get baptized. And he said, okay, that big Marshall smile. And he said, let's pick a date. And um, I had the privilege when I got baptized, I had four converts that got baptized with me that I had the privilege of leading to Christ. So uh, two of them were co-workers and the other two were individuals that had lived here in my home. That's so amazing. Well, I know that I know that uh, one of the things I really love about you is your your passion to uh, to tell other people about Jesus and what he's done in your life and how he can change their lives. And I know you've got a really unique ministry going right now. So I'm going to kind of jump, jump ahead unless uh, Jim wants me to go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Before you do that, I, I will we'll get there in a second, but I just want to connect a couple of dots for some of our readers, because this is amazing, Louie. What an incredible testimony. You talk about, Bob Bevington, that may be a name that a lot of our viewers don't know, but Bob's actually a good friend of both Greg's and mine. And um, yeah, last episode, Greg, we we're talking about the book that I'm working on and the draft. Bob, Bob is actually, uh, he's an, um, um, uh, an eye doctor, but he's also a Christian author. He's published five books. And so if you uh, search for Bob Bevington, you'll see his Christian books. Uh, for example, the, the bookends and, and, and among other books and the, the um, uh red like blood. also editing he i, I he, i've hired him as to be the editor of my book and so he's given me help and so give me um hand holding my hand along the way to kind of get mine uh and as some form that can be published as well so but bob's such an, an incredible uh, uh soul and also um uh, connected also to my wife's family because bob uh, bob was at a low point of his life my wife's father reached out to bob and so kind of really uh, helped him when he felt like an outcast of the church and my really connected with my father-in-law who was able to be instrumental in Bob's life. And then the way you were describing your story Lee, about how your father had said, there's a guy I respect. And that was someone you knew to go up to and talk to just somebody. So Bob ironically was probably in a, one of the lower points of his life when he met with spending time with my father, but I, I suspect perhaps the Lord may have been using that because although he was going through trials and struggling, there was something that my father saw. That's my hope and prayer. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so that, that's really cool. And then um, the other, just to connect dots for listeners, that's one. And then the, you mentioned the 
um, uh, uh, Christmas concert at our church, uh, but also the uh, study, the Men of the Word study. That is a study that Greg and I often talk about that we're preparing for, that we're even tonight, if we get to uh, uh, the uh, passage, we're, we're doing this in preparation for the, that that very study, the Men of the Word Bible study that at our church. And it's part, a large part of our theme of our podcast is that we talk through these passages in anticipation of teaching on them at the Men of the Word study that meets uh, every Saturday morning. So, and you've been a faithful participant in that uh, long before I am. I'm, I'm kind of the newbie still. I'm just glad to be there. I feel lucky to be grafted in, so to speak. So to, <laughs> to be tolerated and be able to be there. So, but yeah, so I didn't want to interrupt. But I want to just connect some dots for our listeners because it's, uh, um, oh, and then you mentioned Marshall Brandon and Marshall uh, also uh, for our listeners is a, a published author. He just published a book he, for Marshall was a former Black Panther is an incredible testimony um, and a rebel from the sixties and came to know Jesus and was a pastor at our church for a long time. Also, a good friend of my father-in-law's and my father-in-law wrote uh, one of the comments in the back of his book in the book jacket. So lots of connections there, Louis, uh, to your life. It's amazing um, how the, uh, how the spirit works and moves in, in our lives. That's cool. I do want us to get into the word a little bit together. So um, finally, Louis, just let's jump way forward to like what's happening right now in your life and how the Lord is using you. Tell tell us a little bit about the ministry you got going on with your Airbnb and um, if you have. So I have, a, I have a bed and breakfast that's here in Highland Square in Akron, Ohio, and it's interesting how that worked out. I actually bought this house when I was twenty years old, and I bought it because it's just simply a block away from my family's bar. So, and that's what compelled me to buy this house. And fast forward thirty two years later, I, I thought I would purchase this home and stay a year or two, get another house, and. I wanted to purchase rental properties and obviously the Lord had different plans, but I started having some health issues about four years ago and I was not able to, to be as focused on my work as a financial advisor as I would like to be. And, um, but obviously needed to earn income. And for 28 years, the Lord was using me despite myself. I've had every kind of human being you can fathom or imagine live here at my home. I've had, convicts, addicts. I've had resident doctors, doctors, nurses. Um, I've had attorneys that have clerked for federal judges. Um, you name it, they've been here. And um, when I started doing the prison ministry, I just recognized in one of my trip, trips home from Warren, what a blessing it is that the inmates are at Trumbull Correctional Institute, both from an individual standpoint, protection for themselves and the community at large. And I recognized on the drive home after four days of going into the prison, it's maximum security prison. You're generally physically, emotionally, and spiritually drained. And I recognized on the way home that some of the people still living in my home weren't too terribly different than some of the people in the prison. And I just recognized it was becoming a little bit challenging and overwhelming. And it was just, the Lord was calling me to do something different. So I shifted from long-term tenants and I started pursuing short-term tenants full-time and fast forward it's been five years now so the bed and breakfast um, i'm just two blocks away from dr bob's home who is the founder of alcoholics anonymous and so i have addicts in recovery that travel from all over the world that come here and stay here with the desire to go and visit bob's home so and ironically a block the opposite direction is my the location of my family's bar of 74 years so it, it makes this interesting triangle and I'm right in the center of it. 
And uh, the Lord has blessed me with a global ministry. I just don't leave home. He's bringing people from all over the world. In fact, I have a guest presently here tonight who is from Nepali, and uh, they represent the 50th country now that has now visited my home here in Highland Square. That's amazing. And I and you, I came over and you gave me a tour of the place, and I can tell you that uh, uh, it's you can't stay there and not sense God in some some way. Or, I mean, there's access to um, anyone who's open to learning about Jesus. There's all kinds of literature available and ways that you can um, learn about faith and grow in your faith. And so it's a really cool ministry you've got going there. And I think you've you've shared the gospel with, you know, I don't know, tens, hundreds. I don't know how many people, but lots of people that have come through. At your this place point, probably it, it's easily a thousand that's amazing that's amazing what a great what a great ministry if anybody wants to check out your website or your or your place what is the web what is the web address it's my last name it's baradin b-e-r-r-o-d-i-n then just add bb for bed and breakfast so baradinbb.com yeah and you got pretty good reviews right Absolutely. So I've won uh, the one award I'm I'm really proud of the last two years. It's TripAdvisor. I'm in the top 10% of all the hotels in the world based upon the reviews that I've received. That is crazy. (laughs) A a house in Akron, Ohio. Google, I have 266 reviews and I actually have a perfect rating. Uh, I have a perfect rating on TripAdvisor. So it's it's really been a blessing, and it's great to see the Lord's hand in things. And that's my hope and desire is just to simply glorify him. That's awesome. Well, hey, we're so glad to have you on the show. Let me tur- let's turn the corner a little bit and kind of to get us back into Genesis. So, um, Jim, you're you're focused on teaching Genesis 12 through 24. That's right. So as we think of those chapters, here's my question. That I, where do we see Jesus show up? Uh, well, it's a great question. For it's, First of all, it's the right question for reading the Old Testament, because I think sometimes you read the Old Testament and say, well, that was the Old Testament before Christ. And, and, and if you want to read about Jesus, you look at the New Testament. But the whole thing, soup to nuts, A to Z, all the way through is all about Jesus all the time. So um, there are a couple places, I think, I'm not sure this is getting at, Greg, where you might say the pre-incarnate Christ literally uh, shows up. Um, and um, so, for example, when Ab- I'm looking for the chapter now, Abraham is sitting in his tent and three people show up. And then Abraham starts talking to the, the three people. Genesis 18. That's 18. Yeah. So uh, verse two, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door and he said, my Lord. And then uh, later they're talking to them. They, they start out being three people, but he talks to them in the in the, in the singular voice later on as if they're one person and they're responding as one person. So um, I'm reading, uh, I'm actually reading a Jewish commentary on the on Genesis now. Um, and they say, well, that's just, you know, when he switches to the singular person, it's really the He's referred to one of the three as responding and talking. But as Christians, we look at this and say, 
this sounds an awful lot like the Trinity. The three and one, one and three, three come, and then Abraham. So, for example, they're talking about the child to come. And um, uh, in verse 16, the, the men rose from there. That's plural. And then verse 17, the Lord said, singular, uh, as if one voice. This is really the, the Holy Trinity, get three and one, one and three. So that, two, that's one place. And then um, I don't know if you're thinking of something else, Greg. Two, two observations, two things that are unique. I always love in scripture where it talks about looking up. So it's reverence, it's awe. It says they looked up and saw these three men. And I think it's important to realize that Abraham was covered in a tent. So there's implications as to what that tent may represent. The covering of the tent. You mean like the human physical body or what do you... Jesus, the covering. He's seeing something divine in these three individuals. Hmm. Okay. He definitely sees it as a divine. Right away in verse three, says, my Lord, if I found favor in your sight. Um, and, um, you know, he uh, quickly has Sarah prepare three cakes. And and, and um, he really addresses those three individuals. As well. He gets it right away. It doesn't take a while to realize, wait a second, you're not just three guys in the desert. You, you know, it doesn't dawn on him slowly. He right away knows it's the Lord. Yeah, well, that I, that's an that's an that, that's exactly what I'm I'm asking is just these these different instances. So the, these could be three angels, or it could be two angels in the pre-incarnate Christ, or it could be somehow a manifestation of the Trinity. Um, I don't know. What do you guys I, uh, think? It, the other the other alternative you mentioned, two angels in the pre-incarnate Christ, could be another interpretation as well, because two of them go down to Sodom the next day, um, and that could be where uh, Jesus stays, the pre-incarnate Christ stays behind, and the two angels go forward to Sodom. So, um, I guess that's if I was to land, you know, that's that's where I feel like I would land. Uh, that that makes the most sense to me, but it is interesting to think about these other these other theories um but do you in do you, any other chapters any anything else come to mind i know last time on the podcast we talked about genesis 15 where god made a covenant with abraham yeah and uh he didn't ask abraham to walk through to make the covenant he didn't he he went through the covenant uh or he yeah i mean so and that's pretty pretty amazing, um, but there was no like physical manif manifestation. But it was, you know, God making it very clear to Abraham that uh, this was a covenant. This was his covenant. Yeah, um, that's yeah. Well, yeah, and that yeah, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of the Trinity, right? That God Himself is passing through those pieces that we talked about last time, Genesis fifteen, saying, "I, you will, you will fail in this covenant, but I will pay the price." And if you say, if you say, it, the Trinity explains that you say God Himself is the just and the justifier, like it says in Romans, God Himself is the judge and the one who's also the justifier, paying the price for you. Well, so how God is it? If you say Jesus Christ was a created being that God created. So he's the son of God, but not God. He's a created being. And you say God created a being and sacrificed his son, right? And um, that was tough on God, but that's not God himself paying the price. That's God creating a being and paying the price. And Genesis 15 makes more sense if you say, God says, I am past these. God himself is passing through the pieces and paying the price is because God in the form of Jesus, as part of the Trinity, is the one who paid for the price 
pay the price for our sins on the cross. There's another spot too, by the way. I'm sorry, Greg, what were we saying? No, go for it. Well, in uh, Hagar, when Hagar's in the desert, uh, I think this, this is chapter 16. I think this is actually the first instance of the angel of the Lord, quote unquote, in the Old Testament, uh, 16 verse 11, when she's running away. So, so for our listeners who might not be familiar with the story, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's promise he's going to have a child and God's going to build a great nation. God shows up several times. That's the point of Genesis 15 we talked about in the last podcast when God says, no, really, I'm going to do this. And Abraham says, how will I know? Okay, so Abraham's kind of doubting. They get older and older, past really the age of naturally bearing children, and God's still promising I'm going to build a great nation. They start to doubt. They take matters into their own hands. And Sarah says, here, take my maidservant, Hagar, and sleep with her. And I'll get a child because I own the maidservant. I'll own the child, too. And then I'll have an heir that way. And rather than trusting the Lord, they kind of take matters in their own hands and do it that way, which I guess was not actually an uncommon practice in that time. So they didn't invent that idea, but nevertheless, they did it. And that was not God's plan, but they did it anyway. And sure enough, Hagar, the servant gets pregnant and then Sarah's really upset. And so uh, this just shows you again that these the, the point of these stories in the Old Testament is not that these people are models of behavior for us to follow. They are recipients of free grace, as messed up as they are. And so I might look at that and say, see what practice they did. Look at that. They, they she gave she gave the maidservant to her husband to sleep with. What the, you call these people great people? How is that an example to follow? It's not an example to follow. And in fact, by doing that cultural practice at the time, it wreaks havoc in their lives. And you can see <laughs> the, the, the destruction of the human relationships because Sarah gets all mad at Abraham and says, you know, you did this and, and and now she's pregnant and she gets mad at Hagar and sends her. And it's, it's awful. It's just a disaster. So Hagar runs away. She's in the wilderness. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord comes to her and comforts her, says some beautiful words about the son to be born. And then in 13, and this, I think this is really beautiful. Uh, Hagar says, then she called the name, the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. She said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Now, she wouldn't have said that. It was just an angel. Like The, 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 the general thought at the time was, if I see God, I'm not going to be able to live. No one can see God and live. Not no one can see an angel live. No one can see God and live. So she had a very clear sense that the angel of the Lord she was interacting with was deity, was God himself. And then, but, but the Hebrew here, what she's saying is that this is a God who sees that it says, you are a God who sees me. You see me. It, it's not so much that I saw you and then I, I die. Because she, she does say that, like, I can't believe I stayed alive having this interaction. Um, but in right in verse 13, you are a God who sees me. Um, and later there are verses in Genesis, which maybe we'll get to that talk about, you're a God who hears me. But this notion of like, you see me, you know, when I lay down, you know, when I rise up. You know, my going out, my coming in, you know me from afar. She it, it, she has that sense that she knows God is seeing her all the time. And it's 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 beautiful and it gives us all as, as Christians a lot of hope. Amen. Yeah, that's so I great. think that's one instance of the pre-incarnate Christ right there. That's great. And then jumping back to Genesis 18, I love this where Abraham's negotiating with God. Yeah. Uh, to try to save um, Lot and his family. <laughs> um, you know, if there's if there's 45 people there, you know, w would you would you destroy it if there's 45 righteous people there? No, I won't destroy it. Well, what if there's 
only 40. And then he goes all the way down to, to 10. And I think the implication is that he he's basically like wants to go down to if there's just one righteous person. And I think the answer is no, there's not one righteous person. There's nobody there that's righteous. Um, Good point. But but God will listens to his prayer and spares his his family. I don't know. Hey, you guys have any comments on that story? That's pretty interesting. Louis, what do you think? Any thoughts on that? Well, specifically what he asked me about it directly. I mean, inevitably, yes. I mean, Christ is the only one that's righteous. So inevitably, if there was but one, you know, he would have foregone. But um, I'm grateful because of his love and his mercy and Abraham's obedience and pleading the God that God is gracious and he he shows grace towards Lot. Mm. Yeah. Which yeah, actually, now, now that I remember, I remember um, Tim Keller talked about this. And it, if you if you read the progression of this, you know, like verse starting verse 32, he's like, may the Lord not be angry. But let me just speak one more. What if only 10 are be found there? And he answered, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. But then verse 33, it says, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. It's as if Abraham knew. He there was no righteous, no one righteous there. Like, and so he kind of, he kind of gave up and just left it in God's hands at that point. Cause he, he wanted, he couldn't go any, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that's the right in, interpretation of it, but we definitely know that, um, you know, Lot may have been a great guy, but he was not a righteous you know, perfectly righteous man. No. Um, um, stop and imagine during that whole progression from 50 to 40 down to 10, the conviction that Abraham must have felt in his pleading, knowing that he himself was a sinner. Yeah. There is yeah. a New Testament passage. I can't find it now where Paul, I think it's Paul writing. He says like that Lot was that righteous man tormented by being in that sinful city. So some description of is like the righteous man, but in, in, in reality, we all know that there's no unrighteous, no, not one. I mean, we all all sin to fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, so, because look at what Lot does with his daughters. Yeah, the the thing with that, well, we can get to that passage, but Lot's not really like, the, the point of the passage is not like, oh, and that awful Lot for what he did. It's like the daughters do this, and it's not like there's a moral accountability on Lot's part, even in that story. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but this one is, so that's, this is a long passage of scripture where there's bar bargaining with God. If you think about <clears throat> what it took to write things on scrolls and maintain language in that day and age. It's a large volume of words and this whole bargaining with God. And it's a real appeal to God's justice, right? You know, look at verse 25. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Like, how could you look at 25? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Oh, so for our listeners who haven't read this, the, the, the background here is that God wants to destroy the city, and uh, Abraham knows his nephew Lot is living in the city, and that's the bargain we've been talking about. He wants to have talk God out of it and have God like spare the city for the sake of righteous. And he starts with a big number. Would you, would you destroy the city if there are 50 righteous people there? Well, God says, no, not if there are 50. And that's what we've been talking about, the bargaining down to 10. Um, but it doesn't work at the end, because all this bargaining... God does destroy the city. So they get, they get down to unit of 10, which I did read was 
because the smallest unit of like social structure in Israel at the time, for some reason, whatever that means. So they get to, whatever reason they get to 10 and stop. Lot's family wasn't 10 strong. There weren't, there weren't 10 people in the family. And at the end, in the next chapter, when uh, the city is destroyed, Lot is spared out of the city, but the city isn't spared for the sake of Lot and his small family. So the bargaining doesn't actually resolve the way Abraham wants it to be resolved. Like spare the city for my sake of Lot. Like, okay, well, we'll take care of Lot, but we're still going to destroy the city. Right. right. Um, and then his wife looks back and turns yeah. into a pillar of salt. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the funny thing about Genesis is it's really, it's really messy, right? It's, it's yeah. there, you see so much, so many flaws and, and the people's lives, but then you just see the hand of God and his grace. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and he, and uh, offering up his daughters in the next chapter and then, um, after he was, after the Lord saved him from that, he, it's like, why did he, why did he do that with his daughters? Couldn't he trust God that he, God would protect them? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, a, um, we look at that as so morally abhorrent. I think part of the, it's the, the culture of hospitality. Like I've got to take care of my guests. So th this is a case where the whole town is kind of crowding around the house and they want to like, it's almost, I hate to say this in polite company, but they want to uh, assault the two visitors. And so a lot of trying to protect the two visitors, which are two angels. Um, and say, uh, and so he, instead he says, here, have my daughters. He's going to offer his daughters to the crowd. It's just a, a deplorable. And it, and it's, there's not a, it's not like he's a, that's a good thing or it's not, it's not, it's, it's a morally abhorrent thing. Right. Um, and well, actually one of the commentaries, right. So you, then later the, the, when, so let's fast forward this episode, we both hinted at later when um, they are rescued from the city and they're all alone. They escaped a little town called Zor. Um, and when they rescued out of the city, they don't even march or go out of the city. The angels have to grab them by the hand and pull them out. They pull out Lot, his wife, the two daughters. The Lot has sons. Lot has a couple other daughters that are and sons-in-laws. The son, he's trying to warn the sons-in-law. They laugh at him. They think he's joking. But even Lot hesitates. He's not that great. He hesitates. He doesn't listen to them. They grab him. They yank him out of the city. And then Lot starts complaining. I don't want to walk that far to the mountains. Can't we just stop at this little town called Zor? They stop at Zor, and then he says, "I didn't feel safe there." And then then Lot leaves. And then the daughters think we're the last humans alive on Earth. Uh, to to keep the race going, we need to sleep with our father. They get him drunk one at a time. And they sleep with the father. All kinds of moral, uh, 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 morally abhorrent things happening here. If you were looking at these as like these are like examples to follow, I can see Lou. You were talking before about you're trying to read the scripture as a new Christian or in your early walk and looking at some of this stuff. You could say, "What on earth does this mean? Like, what is it? What am I supposed to take away? Like." I don't, you know, well, I would say sense. they're excellent examples of what not to do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So in this situation, this mirrors what Abraham and Sarah chose to do in regards to the two daughters. It's it's we as a man taking things in our own hands. It's us trying to create create an ending point or a paradigm instead of just trusting the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's mm. when we take things in our own hands, we try to design a way or a path instead of just being still and trusting the Lord. Things unfortunately just come out terribly sideways. 
That's right. Let's uh, let's jump forward. So then Abraham, God does give Abraham a son uh, yep. through Sarah and na named Isaac, which means laughter. And uh, but then in Genesis 22, it's again one of these crazy things like what is what is happening here? It just seems so it just doesn't make sense because God's promised Abraham the son. And then finally, miraculously, he gets the son. And then at the beginning of Genesis 22, God tests Abraham and basically it's like every phrase of God's command to Abraham was like a knife. He says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, which, by the way, that's the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. Is that right? That's what I that's what I that's what 22. I've read. Wow. Genesis 22, verse two. Wow. Whom you love, offer him there. As a burnt offering. I mean, every one of those phrases is like a knife. And so yeah. uh, it's it's one of the most fascinating chapters of the Bible. But isn't that interesting? It's the first time the word love is mentioned is in Genesis 22. And then it is, yeah. it's a foreshadow, right, of, of, of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And so whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But like, because um, eventually God was going to do the same thing with his own son. Um, although, you know, um, God didn't ask Abraham to actually go through with it. He provided a way of escape. You know, he provided a at the very last second. And and actually, the New Testament commentary on this whole scene is that Abraham did sacrifice Isaac. It was like in his heart, he 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 was willing to do what God asked him to do. And so in a sense, he did. Although at the last second, God stops him and, you know, provides a a, a ram to sacrifice. It's a it's a powerful what what do you guys what do you get what are your thoughts on this chapter? Well, uh, we I think you were referencing Tim Keller earlier because he has a great sermon on this too, and I'm mean, trying to I haven't listened to it in a while. I'm just remembering bits and pieces, but one of the um, one of the major points of it, the kind of the punchline of it, is that um, God says, "Take your son, your only son, whom you love." Um, and sacrifice him. And then God, of course, is, uh, stops with the last minute. So Abraham does not sacrifice uh, the son. Uh, but now, uh, so, so uh, God can say to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me, so that we as Christians can look to our father and we say, now we know, Lord God, that you love me because you, our heavenly father, did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us and sacrificed him for us right that's how that's how we can know so um so the the main term that you guys use was love and scripture is clear it says to us that we show god our love by obeying his commandments mm -hmm. and if i had to come up with a word in regards to chapter 22 it would be love and i I'd probably love or obedience 
So again, we had, we had mentioned earlier in Isaiah chapter six, the verse, you know, and Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord and he said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord. And the chapter begins and it's mentioned three times this progression. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And then later, you see that the son speaks to the father. And Isaac said to, the, to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for him the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both they went both of them together. And again, that's that's Abraham's faith. There's the belief. God will provide. And then it, it presents itself a third time. And it says, but the angel of the Lord called him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes. Again, here's the lifting of his eyes. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And to me, that's the, that is the, uh, the changing. Of the, that's where he takes our place. That's a manifestation of Christ in the ram. Yeah. The ram takes Isaac's place, right? Well, how as, about this? As substitute. As his substitute. How about this thought? Have you ever thought about Isaac? Isaac's life is like a picture of Jesus. Amen. Because both of them were loved by their father. Both of them offered themselves willingly. Because Isaac did offer himself willingly when he realized he didn't try to run away. Both of them carried wood up the hill of their sacrifice. Yeah. Jesus carried the cross. Both were sacrificed on the same hill. That actually, Mount Moriah, is actually where the Dome of the Rock is. It It's on the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock is built on top of Mount Moriah, which is, is where right? this event occurred. Um, so they were sacrificed on the same hill, and both were delivered from death on the third day. That's pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, verse four, on the third day, you're right. That's right, the third day. So Isaac is a picture of Jesus. Amen. Absolutely. I think that's pretty cool. There's one other thing, Lou, you're talking about obedience and Abraham's obedience. And I think, as I recall, Keller points this out in his sermon on this. Um, Abraham had been waiting all these years, like, what, he's 99 when Isaac's born? So... Finally, he gets the son, and and so one, one question is: This sounds, you know, if, you, if you're a non-Christian reading this, you read this and say, "Gosh, it sounds kind of like God. Why would God ask for a human sacrifice?" It's one thing, Abraham. Abraham, for all the bargaining he did for Lot in that previous chapter, is remarkably obedient. And Louis, when you're pointing out all the "Here I am" statements, "Here I am," God's, you know, he says, "Here I am." God says, "Take your son," and Abraham just goes and does it. He doesn't start bargaining. And for all the bargaining he did for 20 verses and a few chapters ago, for Lot's sake, he doesn't do anything for Isaac's sake. He says, okay. And he, right away he goes, he's obedient. But the, the question, if you read, say, it sounds strange that God would even ask for a human sacrifice. One explanation is that um, 
Isaac was so likely to become an idol in Abraham's life because he'd been mm. waiting so long for a son. The promise his whole life is going to be built around there's going to be a great nation to come through this son. This finally he's here. Thirteen is kind of like, you know, uh, come to uh, starting into manhood and like you put so many hopes and dreams in the son. Like you could see this God saying, you know, this is this is so likely to be an idol in your life. So there's a minor subtext for us that I think that a lesson for us, like uh, the the. Sometimes the answer, yeah, like the blessings, the blessings of God, yeah, sometimes become more important than God Himself. And when that happens, that is, um, you know, I think John Piper has a book called "God Is the Gospel," and he brings up this point a lot that what what we often will do is take the God's blessings and we make them more important than God Himself, and that's we're in big trouble. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's not the bad things that get us in trouble or, or get us off track. It's the good things that become oh, ultimate things. So many times you're saying, God, why are you putting me through this? Why are you taking this? You think of example after example, or like, yeah, it's because something in your life is becoming an idol and God's kicking that out from under you. God's trying to get rid of that in your life. But that's why it's painful. That's right. Why, why did I lose this job or why did I lose this thing? Or it's because not always. There's lots of trials and there's lots of difficulty in life. So I don't want to make light of any of that. Um, but a lot of the ones that really sting, the reason it's stinging is because it was turning into an idol. So, so I want to make one. I want to, oh, oh, real ahead. quick, real quick, and then I'll let you go, Louis. Um, I want to get backtrack to where I talked about the word love. The first time it's mentioned is here in this in this passage. Isn't it interesting that the first mention of love is in the context of love between a father and a son? Oh yeah. And it's connected with the idea of a sacrificial offering of a son. Isn't yeah. that interesting that, that, that that's the first time it's mentioned? That just points right to Jesus. It's a great thought, Craig. Louis, what did you want to share? Well, when you just shared that, the verse, there's no, let, no greater love than this, than a friend who's willing to lay down his life for another. Love is sacrificial. So... Um, I was just going to point out Romans, it talks about the dangers of uh, elevating the created things, the creature over the creator. And inevitably, the blessing of the son, Isaac, you know, it's, it's, it's a gift from the, the gift giver. You know, and I think sometimes we lose sight of, I, you're 100% right, Greg, you know, the finite things and the things of the world when we start to look sideways instead of looking up. You know, our dependence is, is upon Christ. He's the pinnacle. And even to love our children in a fashion worthy of his calling, it would be impossible to do that in a righteous na nature, absolute Holy Spirit and his empowering. So there's that hierarchy and that design that he's created. And there's an order of design and a purpose. And it's, it's rooted in love. And that reminds me of something uh, Aristotle, that's Aristotle. Um, <laughs> St. Augustine, they both start with an A. So, yep. um, the, the whole, one of the keys to Christianity is getting your loves in the right order. Our problem is not so much that we do the wrong things, though we do do the wrong things. Our disordered we loves. Love wrong things. We, yes, we love the wrong things. We have disordered loves, right? And got to get your loves in the right order. So maybe that's what God was, why God was working on Abraham's heart. So I'm expecting when you teach us, Jim, that you're going to bring out the fact that this is the first time the word love is mentioned. I will dutifully mention it in, <laughs> in, in the Bible. And it's in the context of a father 
love love for his son, sacrificial love for his son. Yes, I'll say, as, as my good friend Greg Bryan pointed out to me in our podcast. Well, <laughs> for credit. Why don't we start to wrap this up? So at the end of chapter twenty-two, not the very end, but like kind of towards the end, verses fifteen to. 18 um it says the angel of the lord called to abraham from heaven a second time and said i swear by myself declares the lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son i will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the sand sand shore seashore um your descendants will take possession of cities the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. That's that's kind of a neat. Um, I, I don't know what you would call it. Like, uh, I guess the end of the story of like, you know, God. He was obedient. Abraham was. I mean, it must have been agonizing for Abraham those three days. Um, I don't think he was joyfully. Um, you know, I don't think this was a joyful time for him. I think he was probably going through a lot of agony, but in the end, you know, God just reaffirms, Hey, because you've done this, I'm going to bless you. And in fact, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because you've obeyed me. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's powerful. Um, so any final thoughts guys that you want to make? No, it's just uh, like we start off saying, it's amazing to see the whole story, the the thread that goes through the whole story is all is about is Jesus. It's all about Jesus, right? Every page. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty awesome. So we, you know, part of your story, Louis, you were sharing your testimony at the beginning of this this episode. And uh, you're talking about all the things you were not addicted to, that you were not addicted to, you know, uh, carbonated drinks and cigarettes or drink. Anyway, we call this the Gospel Addicts Podcast. So um, we are creatures, you know, I think we're all addicts. I think by our, our, our hearts in our hearts, every human being is addicted to something. And uh, we call most, this a gospel addict. Time it's multiple things. Right. A lot of times it's multiple things. But we call this a gospel addict because we think that the, the most pure addiction is to be addicted to the good news about Jesus and how it, it's, it doesn't just bring us to Christ for our salvation, but it's what grows us. It's it's the key to our our spiritual growth and um and and, and life change. So um yeah, and you guys any 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 comments you want to make about that in closing? Well, um so we're commanded by God we're we're to wake with the word, uh, we're to end our day in the word. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. And we're also commanded by Almighty God to whatever is honorable, good, and what's just, those are the things we're supposed to focus upon. So we do tend to 
obsess, if you will, or focus on things. And um, again, we have the ability, we can cry out to the Lord and we can ask him, there's a renewing of our heart. He gives us a new heart. He renews our mind. And uh, let us have the mind of Christ. And uh, so, uh, salvation, we're sealed, but sanctification begins. And uh, my hope and my prayer is that uh, through his spirit, I'll continue to keep my eyes and gaze fixed upon him, all that's lovely, all that's good. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.